You're listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. AJ, for those that haven't come across you online, introduce yourself and tell our listeners what we're going to talk about today. I'm AJ Loyakino. I am the CEO of Capital RX. We are a pharmacy benefit manager that services self-insured payers like employer groups, unions, municipalities. We're also a PBA, a pharmacy benefit administrator, where we sell our technology and services to sophisticated payers. These could be health systems, health plans, carriers that require a combination of processing and end services. We've been in business for about six years, headquarters in New York City, and hard to believe, a little over 540-ish employees at this point. Today, as we look back, and last time I spoke to it was two years ago, it's hard to believe, and I think during that time, when we originally were talking, it was why does the industry need a differentiated problem? What is wrong with legacy PBM models and legacy PBM services? And I think now the pendulum has really swung quite a bit to the other side, where suddenly you're looking at everyone questioning what a PBM is doing, what their value may be. You're seeing the FTC investigate PBMs. You're also looking at the Senate Finance Committee and legislation on PBM reform, even state legislators changing rules, be it everything from West Virginia to Florida around spread pricing and fair reimbursement to pharmacy. So quite a bit has changed in two years. AJ, when I think of changing, I always think that part of the reason things have come to light is because of the internet, LinkedIn and getting stories across on TikTok and podcasts and things like that. Do you think that's been part of it, that it brought some of this to the light? And if not that, why the timing now? I think yes, in a combination of some other things. So let's start with the first one. I think modern communication and the appropriate size amount of communication. We like bite-sized media in the United yeah, States. Absolutely. And so I think it's it makes it more accessible. I think there are some really brilliant people out there that are able to take complex ideas and simplify them very quickly to have people understand what is wrong or why there is a problem. I think also it makes it easier for someone to just let more people know if they have a bad experience or something doesn't make sense. There was a time you would have to literally put together a professional media production to make a video. Now you have this tool in your pocket that not only will be a relatively good studio and editing form for you, but publish it for you and communicate. I think the other thing is drug spend is catching up to this country. When I started in this industry, it's hard to believe 23 years ago, in 2000, drug spend top line was $120 billion industry roughly. And today it's over $600 billion top line. And have we increased our population 500% over this time? No. How did we go from something that was 5-6% of healthcare dollars to suddenly being 30-40 for some payers, 50% of their healthcare dollars? So I think the urgency was created by suddenly there's this catastrophic event of cost that it could be at a personal level for a patient or at a plan level for a small employer group. And 
this is pushing this conversation to the forefront. And then for what we just talked about, I think it's great that people can make a TikTok and help people understand PBM or healthcare more efficiently. The manufacturers are going to say, of course, drug spend is more now because we've got better drugs and we're keeping people out of the hospitals. And of course, it's also going to be a higher percentage because look at all of the people out of the hospital. Is that a true statement or has that taken off way past that with drug spend? I'm going to say something a little bit different here, which is I think pharma is part of a system that they didn't really create on their own. And what I talk about here is drug inflation. Branded product might inflate anywhere from 5 to 10%. So this is simple molecule brand. And specialty drug might inflate anywhere from 7 to 15% compounding each year. And someone might be like, they benefit, they being pharma, they benefit solely from drug inflation and price increases. And I say, not since... 2014. And someone would be like, wait, what's so special about 2014? And I call it the price curve to gross to net curve inverts, where once upon a time, if I were to increase the price of a branded drug by a dollar, it would be safe to say pharma would keep maybe 50 cents on the dollar. And then over time, through the creation of formularies and pay-to-play economics and even exclusionary formularies, and then you have consolidation in the industry, increased purchasing power by three or four large entities, You know what happens is suddenly that power flipped where pharma was in charge of the supply chain and the vertically integrated carriers took over. And when that occurred, Every time a PBM would ask, hey, I need rebates or additional considerations, that's the net coming off the list price, what happened was pharma ran out of room. Like, So in the old days, you need more money, I'd just increase the drug prices. But suddenly, state legislation and federal legislation and the press started looking at these price increases and they had to cap themselves. Like, I need to cool this down because I'm drawing too much attention. And so now for every dollar increase that pharma might increase on a drug, the PBM and the vertically into carriers are pulling $1.5, $1.6 back. And this is gross to net. So list price, yes, is going up, but branded and specialty products net are actually falling and they've been falling since 2014. And so this is very important to remember because Outside of catastrophic risk, and this catastrophic risk is something uneventful. You have a high cost claim and enter your experience. When you look at or study a large population, there's really no catastrophic risk. It's all occurring equally in your population on a large enough sample. And so the point here is that I'm trying to make is that if branded product is falling net and specialty is falling net since 2014 roughly, and generic drugs have been deflating since 2014, why is anyone's drug trend positive? It's because the supply chain is opaque and overly complex, and this allows for certain parties to take advantage. I said this publicly, so I might as well say it again. 
If people ask me to summarize healthcare in the United States, I unfortunately describe it as an arbitrage on patient ignorance. Mm -hmm. And because it's overly opaque and because it's overly complex, the end patient is confused. What is the real person? You know, what's really fascinating is if you were to put together a panel, Mike, of subject matter experts and we were to play a game, what is the net price of this drug? We wouldn't be very good at it. No. Because it depends on what lens you're looking at. Because gross to net is what I call asymmetric warfare. It's not, okay, the manufacturer has a list price of $100 and the real price is more like 45 And it's just one big discount. No, some of that is price protection. Some of that is a rebate. Some of that is just a good old-fashioned discount, bulk rate or chargeback or whatever it may be, clinical access fees. There's hundreds of different things that are pulling value. Some of this is couponing. Some of this is patient assistance, but it's just pulling down gross to net for the manufacturer. And so it's a very complex discussion, but it never needed to be. The reason why this conversation has become so complex is because, unfortunately, administrators, that's really what a PBM, a pharmacy benefit manager, you know, let's call them what they are, is they're doing hundreds of administrative tasks. So let's just start with, you need something there. You can call it a PBM, you could call it an administrator. You need someone on behalf of the payer to manage eligibility and accumulator feeds and set a formulary, manage plan design and have a call center and reporting and print cards and letter and prior authorization and approvals and hundreds of tasks that are going on the back end. So I always want to point that out. And normally when you perform a task, you do it for some form of a fee. Fee, right but not a tax on the service or the good. And I think that's where the industry started to go sideways with kind of the entire PBM industry coming forth with a business model where there are no administrative costs. It's zero, but I'm going to just take a little bit of the drug spend. And that amount increased more and it became a runaway freight train, as we know. And I think this is what is creating a lot of the friction and the problem. One of my staff is all excited because in Michigan, they're having these DIR rules coming into effect and so on. And I say to them, don't get your hopes up. I said, here's what's happening. Here's what I hope to happen. That things might get worse January 1st, but through them forcing to do DIRs at the point of sale and all this kind of stuff, that it's going to cut down on the obfuscation that was built into this on purpose. And maybe it might be easier then to talk to the Michigan House and the legislators in Washington, and they might understand it more because instead of having 12 layers of smoke and mirrors that got cut down to three kind of thing. Is that going to help? Or are they just going to, maybe it's simpler. Now it's down to a few levels, but they're going to make seven more levels below it. I think, you know, to be fair, when you say they, it's the people that rely upon this revenue now. You know, and so these are typically publicly traded companies. And I often point out, yes, their fiduciary responsibility is to their shareholders. So 
When someone says, hey, look, we're used to a 20% gross margin on pharmacy and report a 4 or 5% net to the street, we need to keep at a minimum that 4 to 5% net. Now, there might be some margin compression. So instead of starting at 20, I might start at 15 or whatever that number may be. But I need to become more efficient. I need to cut overhead, whatever it may be. But there's also the point that you're making, which is you're taking away 5%, but maybe I can find 5% somewhere else. And this goes back to my comment on asymmetric warfare. It is not very easy to understand all the areas of revenue that are being harnessed, if you will, in the model. So I think, yes, regulation and oversight is necessary and helpful. You can't convince me otherwise, because until the regulation becomes so heavy-handed, it becomes inefficient, but I haven't seen that yet. In fact, we really have had very little oversight and regulation in this industry. I often joke, let's just take self-insured business. Who is the regulatory arm or oversight? And it's technically the Department of Labor under ERISA, I'd like to point out. For CareCade, sure, it's CMS, but it's not clear-cut, and they certainly... To this day, I want to make it clear, I'm very supportive of those organizations and agencies, but due to resources, they just haven't been able to even lean in and start to understand. I think some of the benefits from the amendment to the Consolidated Appropriations Act end of 2021, which amended Section 408B2B on healthcare compensation and disclosures. So if you're a self-insured plan, you're the fiduciary, the plan sponsor. You have to find out what everybody's making, the compensation on your plan. And in addition to that, you need to understand if that's fair or reasonable. It's not just, hey, I did some reporting. Be like, all right, someone's making seven, eight bucks a script on me. Is that fair? And it's I'm not talking about the administrator. I'm talking about something in between. And so I think to your earlier question, though, it is helpful if there's legislation or amendments or just better regulatory oversight. Sure, someone is always going to try and find a way to make more money, but at least it's starting to contain some of that unrestricted gain or revenue share that people could find in the marketplace. I don't think there's going to be the magic solution that covers everybody's need and to your point makes it very easy and transparent to understand. I think what is going to create and foster change more than anything else is competition. And I think that's where Capital RX and our organization comes into play where if you're able to offer someone a better service model at a lower price point and real performance, people are going to take note and take your pick of any industry. Better product comes around, challenges, legacy models, challenges, oversized margin a competitor may have been enjoying. I think this is what is healthy in any industry. What's your take on the FTC investigation? Were you happy to see that? Is that a pain in the ass? What's your thought on that? I think it's overdue. I think it's helpful that someone is 
investigating or reviewing the model, whatever verb you want to put in yeah. there. So I think it makes sense. I think decisions that were made in this century didn't necessarily understand what was being built or what was the true result or impact of vertical integration. And I, I would imagine part of this investigation has become perhaps a little bit less about the PBM and more about vertical integration. That is purely a guess. And I think this all goes back to, is there a concern? Is there something anti-competitive occurring here? Is the American citizen or the American patient being injured by some of these organizations? So I don't know what will come of it, but I think regardless, it demonstrates the US government is taking an interest in one of our, if not the most expensive industry in the $4 trillion we spend in the United States on healthcare in general. Yes, I definitely believe if the FTC or DOJ wants to look at telecommunications or look at automobile manufacturing, they certainly should be looking at the healthcare industry. So look, I think it's natural. It's healthy. I think we'll see what happens. But right now, we don't know much of anything. We just know it's an ongoing study. AJ, you brought it up. Competition. We know there's three oligopolies at the top and there's a handful of other companies in there. I got to believe that there's a competitive spirit among the PBMs. Is that going as you thought? Do you want it to grow faster? Yes. I think you have to be competitive to survive in any industry as an entrepreneur. It's very rare that you find yourself in a position where you can just coast, especially if you think about it. We compete in the PBM space with three Fortune 15 companies. That's pretty rough competition. Most people say, hey, I want to start a business and I have a recycling business and I've got to compete with Sal's recycling down the road. And you might get into it, but Sal's not a Fortune 15 company. He doesn't have those resources or contacts or brand awareness. And so for us, yes, it has certainly been a challenge every day, but we're a mission-driven company. Our mission changed the way drugs are priced and patients are serviced to create enduring social change. You know, that has not changed since I founded the company and we remain dedicated as an organization to live up to that mission. I think some of the things that have changed over time for us is as we became more sophisticated with our technology and started to understand and recognize a lot of the inefficiency that may drive suboptimal decisions. That's a kind way of saying something that may be taking more money than it should. I think the inefficiency sometimes creates this need. And so for us, we often say to create the infrastructure to give the country the healthcare it deserves. Because you and I can think of a brilliant idea of how to change something in healthcare, but a lot of people don't understand the electronic infrastructure we sit on for administrative workflows and data exchange is extraordinarily dated and inefficient and rigid. And that creates something that becomes fragile. You don't like to change your code or 
you don't like to consider new entrants in your health ecosystem or exchange data efficiently because you don't know what is going to happen to your system. I think, yes, we are competitive. You have to be. The definition of being an entrepreneur is you hunt and harvest your own food. No one's going to come to your rescue but you. And so you have to have this spirit. You have to have a desire. I don't want to say to win, but a desire to endure. Because winning is a weird concept. What does winning mean? Because seriously, you can have two entrepreneurs in front of you and one entrepreneur can say winning means we're making more money. Winning means we're killing it. Winning for me means we have the best systems. Winning for me means we have the happiest patients. Winning for me means we have the most loyal customers. Winning for me means we're creating meaningful change to truly move past a model that I think should have sunset a decade or so ago and have people understand you should be having administrative services in a very efficient model in which you understand cost. You can walk into, let's just say, a large store and there are millions of products for sale, millions of SKUs in a large store or even an online shopping experience. And if you think about the active NDC 11s in the database at any one time, they're about 140,000-ish. And if you look at the actual NDC 11s used by a large employer, it might be anywhere from 15 to 20,000. It's not millions of SKUs. And I bring this up because you can track and understand price. You know, this it's not a mystery. And people be like, there's so many drugs. I'm like, stop right there. We can find a price for anything. If you go to SpaceX's website, they'll tell you how much it costs to put a metric ton into space. There's a, an, a price for almost everything that you can clearly see. One of the cornerstones of an efficient market is buyers and sellers freely communicating on price. And we don't have that at scale in the United States. And that's part of our mission. And these are the things that inspire me and our team every day to continue to move forward and make progress. And I think also to your other point is there's no timeline on this. It's not like, hey, are we making the progress that we needed to? I think, look, we're right in line. Could I have done things faster? Impossible to tell. Could I have done things more slowly? Certainly. I can always tell you I can do things <laughs> yeah. at a slower pace. That yeah, right. I'm 100% sure of. I might not be comfortable with it, but I certainly could. But I think it's just really, could you do it faster? And I think my colleagues will tell you, no way. Sometimes you can do things too fast, make decisions too fast, be good maybe to hold back and make that decision when the time's right, because you get a better view, a bigger view of it. I agree. I think for us, it's been a measured, thoughtful approach. You're evolving too. I mean, if you were to read the Capital RX business plan in early 2018, we have evolved quite a bit. Even when you and I, Mike, spoke a couple years back, our organization has evolved. When we started in this industry, we only processed commercial claims, employer groups. And over these last two years, We've continued to build out our platform. Our platform is called Judy. Judy's the brains of our organization. But we made 
a significant investment to process government claims, Medicare, Medicaid, but not just process them. We have a clean sheet of paper. And this gives us the opportunity to really think about how do we do these processes more efficient, more accurately? How do we improve star ratings? How do we ensure better patient engagement? How do we ensure more thoughtful reporting? How do we make sure our audit protocols are even to a higher standard than what is being asked of us today? And there's 50 or so PBMs of all varying sizes that will service your employer plan. But there's only six of us that process government claims. A lot of times someone will be like, wait a second, doesn't this blues plan process Medicare? And I'll be like, it's one of the big three behind it. And even carriers, you'd be like, well, it's a pretty significant carrier. And they're publicly traded. And they'd be like, they must process their own. Be like, no, they rely upon the big three as well. And it's a very finite universe. What I try and make a point of, Mike, is we're really the only claim adjudication system that was written after 2006. And why was that important is that's Medicare expansion. And so we really didn't take a legacy system and try and shoehorn it into the regulations. We really had an opportunity to say, wait a second, let's write this correctly. Let's literally write the best Medicare platform out there. And that's exactly what we've done. And so it's a great example of starting with one idea, servicing that market well in that segment, gaining experience and building to a much bigger experience and marketplace. AJ, how has your day-to-day -day changed at the company in the last two years? Because when you're starting out, you've got the different hats, but often you're wearing those hats. And in the last couple of years, what leaders have you brought on for different parts of the organization? And how has that been as far as you now have a head of X and a head of Y and a head of Z kind of thing? What are some of those positions that have come with the growth in the last couple of years? And how's that been for you? You're spot on as always. You start out, we were three people and a plant. That's how Capital RX started. Ryan, Joe, and myself each kind of divided the responsibilities of the organization. And then you slowly attract people to come work at your company that has three people in a plant. Not very exciting, perhaps, but somehow you convince them and they join your organization and they're able to contribute in a particular role or an area. And early on, the people that you're attracting are more of what I would say, they're really engaged with a specific set of responsibilities. Okay, this person's going to handle this segment, which is marketing communication. This person's going to handle just selling, not even a specific type of selling. You're just doing anything that has related to sales. You're it. You're broadly inserting people into these roles. You're in charge of operations. Be like, what does that mean? That's everything from reporting to implementation. You're going to learn it. And I think that's kind of your phase one. Phase two is you start to either one, have those initial people you hired emerge as leaders in your organization, which is phenomenal. It's what you always want. If you look at my co-founders, Ryan and Joe, I've been working with them for two lifetimes, it feels like for me. And 
I recognize them in their path and that they could contribute so much more. And you look at the people in your organization. And so that's your first goal is, hey, who are we promoting? And then they can backfill the people. So you're creating more specific segmentation. Now operations is, let's separate implementation from clinical services then reporting and network management. And holy cow, there's this entire group that's called finance. Hey, why don't we have someone who can come in to be in charge of that? And you start to divide up your tasks and you start to be able to hire leaders into your company as well, because sometimes you just don't have a broad enough population. You don't have enough people to possibly fill those roles. And so you look outside and some of them are people you've had the privilege of working with, people that you always thought very highly of and said, gosh, if we can get them in the organization, that would be wonderful. This is what you start to do. That's where you start to build out. And so you have, we try and create a fairly flat infrastructure here, but you have your leadership team. You're going to have your lieutenants that are going to have what I call more specific roles underneath that person. And then you have obviously managers and associates that help ensure those goals and services happen. So, I mean, I think there's no mystery, you know, I'm re revealing here to any listener, but I think it's important to understand in the early going, you're absolutely right. You're wearing every hat possible in the organization. You're slowly dividing it up. But one of the things that I do want to reinforce is you're constantly looking who are your next generation of leaders. It's oftentimes like you're running any type of professional sports team. You have a farm system, some sort of farm league, and you know, you're working with these people and you're taking note of your high performers. I will say the pandemic made it a little bit harder to recognize that talent virtually. I'm not saying impossible, but it was very easy when you work day in and day out with people. Also, when you needed volunteers in real time, you would be shocked how many people would just be, we were an open office concept, but over here conversation, be like, I'll help with that. I'll do that. I'll go to that. And you're like, oh, that's amazing. And I think that's what you're looking for. But I think that is really the transition over the last five and a half years is mm -hmm. going from three people to a plant to 500 plus people. What does that look like? You know, exactly what we're describing, but the core of your organization many times is that same strand of DNA that started with your first 20, 40 hires or so. And those people really become me in many ways because now they're inspiring their people. They're finding their A players and they're going to continue helping us build out the org. At what point in that hiring process, AJ, did it stop affecting you personally? So let's say that it's just you and your two co-founders and you hire another person and okay, now that's a 33% change. And then let's say you hire another 10 people and it's like, all right, now you've done this and that obviously would change your day to day. Now, whether you hire your 495th or your 505th employee might not affect you as much. Where did it stop affecting you? I know you're a flat organization, but where did it stop making a difference for you as far as your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, I was going to create a magical number, I would say around 150 employees. I, I think at that point, you 
are becoming what a CEO ultimately becomes many times, which is a fairly lonely position in the organization. You're trying to balance, hey, I'm providing broad guidance and vision and oversight and obviously board communication and governance. But at the same time, you don't want to lean in too hard into anyone's department. You want them to thrive and feel empowered and basically look at the goals that have been outlined for the organization broadly as well as specifically for their department or departments. And I think that's what you're focusing on very much. I will say this, you would be surprised though, you still have moments where some hire enters the organization and it does impact you. And I think part of this is we may be expanding services and now I need someone to oversee that group or that new product line. And here's a new direct report that I didn't have six months ago. And so you still have moments in which someone is engaging with me directly and making a change to my day-to-day. -day. I have a new report. And I think also the other thing that you're always aware of in this process is what you can't see. So we, going back to when this organization started, we are very different in many ways, not just from an organizational standpoint, but the products and services that we're delivering to market. So we started with, I think we had two engineers with Ryan, my, my co-founder and CTO, and I think we're now over 140 engineers. And, and so it's a very different, there's an org structure just around front end, back end, DevOps, SecOps, all the different areas that you're looking at just from the software side. And that did not exist in the first couple of years. So sometimes the organization is evolving and a lot of it has to do with your goals and the services you're bringing to market. When I say loneliness, it's a little bit different because it's loneliness from the role and the responsibility. And I always want to make this clear. These are my observations. I never want someone to be like, that's ridiculous. This is how I look at my role, which is you're between two worlds. One is my board of directors, and I do have a responsibility to them. The other one is my management team, and I have a responsibility to them. And then orbiting these two worlds is the company, my client base. And so when I say sometimes it's lonely, you have to remember that you represent reasonably the interests of both of these groups. And as you get older, you learn that you need to balance it. There's compromise. There's not one way. You have to be willing to stick up for either side at different points. But sometimes this makes you the person in the middle that's trying to create the arbitration. Everyone hates the arbitration. You're just exactly. Like, it's a, I think it gets lonely sometimes in that regard. The bigger you become, the more isolated you become. It's not to say I don't have wonderful colleagues, wonderful work relationships. I'm definitely talking about just you are never quite the same as you used to be. And that's a reality. Yeah. I'm sure there are other CEOs that would have similar experiences. I think there are some CEOs be like, that's the wrong way to think about it. I am just simply sharing what goes through my head, which is 
It is lonely. And I think that is one of the biggest reasons is you do have a responsibility to everyone. Yeah. And in doing so, you're isolated. As I think about stressors personally, my stress is now that I'm becoming an old fart and more kids are out of the house, I think two things. One is my actions don't have as long of a ramification because I maybe have five years left when before it was 30 years left in the profession. And also I just have less people gradually depending on me kind of thing. What was your most stressful time in the business, starting up, or was it now that you've got 500 employees, or is it different day-to-day? If you look at the length of your career, when do you feel like some of those tensions were the hardest for you personally? I think, in general, the hardest times for me were always when I had conviction on a business point or a business plan. Someone has set an objective for me that could be the board, that could be a peer in the organization, and I have conviction for it, and I am the minority view. I am not winning the argument. And this is an interesting concept because a lot of being an entrepreneur, this is a horrible thing to say, is winning an argument. Now, It's your job to articulate a thoughtful defense or a thoughtful case as to why this should be the course of action. And so my most stressful times have been when I've been the dissenting view. Be like, no one agrees with you in this room. Why should we believe you, AJ? Why do you think this is the way to go? And so that is where the most stress enters my life because I have conviction. I have a vision, and I always want to make this fair. I can be wrong, but it doesn't take the stress away, especially if it is a large decision. Someone's charging you, hey, how do we make this company even bigger and do this? And you're like, based upon my experience and data I've gathered, this is my plan. And the question is, how are people going to respond to it? And your conviction also doesn't end with a no. So Capital RX in many ways was born from a no, where at one point in my career I had conviction, I felt that I was observing something in the marketplace that was a variety of data points that was leading me to this thesis that would become Capital RX. And I had conviction for it, but Even though I perhaps didn't win my point or points at a prior date, it stayed with me. It never left me, that conviction. And I think this characteristic or these characteristics are very important for an entrepreneur where you're saying, okay, I may have to step away, but we're doing this. Or I may have to double down on this, but that is hands down some of the most miserable in my life. And there's no escaping it. There isn't. Because you either become a zombie and just walk with the living dead in the model that you think is not going to pan out, or you energize the organization and you have people see and embrace the vision and where we're headed and why this is so beneficial. And it does become easier with success. I remember when I was a kid, 
in supply chain software. And I wrote a proposal to one of the regional managers. And the first thing he wrote back to me, he goes, do you always send business proposals to your, the management team? And I go, no, it's my first time. And he was just like, yeah, he's, keep trying, guy. Like one day you'll get it. And 20 years later, it becomes a lot easier because now you have success or experience or at least a track record that people would say, okay, he hasn't lost it. This seems like a sound strategy. Let's lean in and listen. Let's give him or her the opportunity. And I think that's really important. I think there is a bright spot in all this. Yes, it's stressful. But when you realize it, that's what's been driving. It gives you the, the, the tingles, that moment. And you're like, this is why I endured that period. It could last a year could last two years. It's not, oh, you, you lost the decision. It's a day or two. Some of these things took me a year or two to crawl out of. And I say crawl because it's humbling. You're on your knees. You've been laid low. And I've always been taught it's easy to be a winner. Super easy. There are different types of winners. There's congratulatory winners, respectful winners, but winning is genuinely easy. You know what's hard? Losing with dignity, losing with honor, and losing in the sense you didn't lose part of yourself in that experience, that you're holding it together. And this is any profession. Anybody has gone through this. I don't care. And I put aside being an entrepreneur, we all have moments in our life we are laid low. And it's what you do after it is going to define you. And that's what I was taught. So this is a shout out to my mom and dad, who both passed away during this journey of Capital Rx. And I wish I spent more time with them, but they live with me every day. And these are the principles they taught me, right, wrong, indifferent. These are the things that empower me to move forward at those dark points and find reason and logic and compassion and all the other things that go into being a good leader. I don't want to put you in this position, but pretend there's a company similar to yours, similar size, a different market, similar investors and things like that. And you talk about taking shots with maybe some wrong moves and so on. Let's look at Blockbuster and so on. Yep. Is your job ever precariously positioned as takeovers and kicking you out and all this kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. No, I think, Mike, I always, let me be fair. This is how I was trained by a mentor. This is what I genuinely believe from my experience. And let me make this clear to any entrepreneur or business person out there. You are only as good as your last quarter. If anyone were to respond the opposite of what I said, I would find that a little bit suspect because if you're a high performer, you understand in two seconds, you will be judged by your last three months. And if those don't go well, you will be judged by the next three months. And if those don't go well, you may not have another quarter. The company might, but you might not. Oh, absolutely. You might have mediocre stats or goals if we're going to go to the business side. 
And that's all right. The business may continue, but they, management, or in this case, your board may say, let's think about a different role for you. Let's think about how you can contribute. Now, that's a question, but let's take the great player. Do they want to be the offensive line coach? Okay, maybe I do. I don't know. It depends on how much you love the team. It depends on your rapport with management or your board and other things. And also depends upon your journey. Was it a devastating quarter, quarters, and you just had a mental or emotional toll? But I always want to make this clear. Let's focus on the positive. Perform, and these questions never emerge. But even as the founder and CEO, you might find yourself in a precarious position. Anytime. That could happen a couple months into the business. Or someone just gets cold feet, and the family that they're part of is saying, I don't want you to take the risk. There's no paycheck coming in. There's so many things that can trigger that. Forget non-performance for a second. I I think it's important to remember, it's just life can work against you where I don't have the conviction. I'm not continuing in this journey and people catch it. It could be that someone becomes disenfranchised with the business model. I don't agree. This wasn't what we agreed to. I'm out. I think it can happen anytime. If you have investors, it could certainly happen at any time. The moment you have investor money in the organization, depending upon how much someone owns, again, they may have negotiated certain rights. They may not. It may just be based upon the equity, but can put pressure. So it can come at any time. It can happen within the first year of a business, and that shadow will follow you forever. I don't care if you're a publicly traded company and CEO of a Fortune 50 company. In my situation, I own my business. Nobody can kick me out except my wife, who has a 50% absentee owner, I suppose, could work on kicking me out. Besides that, my job is protected until someone's 51% owner. Sure. So it's the investors. As soon as the people got in there, they can boot you out. Exactly. So investors can do it, or unless someone negotiated some sort of extraordinary right within your operating agreement. But otherwise, I go back to the more human elements of someone just giving up. Because why is someone going to just stop or kick it in? There's it's too much pressure. Quite often before somebody would kick you out, you've already brought yourself down. Yes. And you've already almost made up your mind, I shouldn't be here kind of thing. It's never a surprise when it's going to rain. Yeah. You step out of the house, there's some clouds. It's very rare. It's a beautiful sunny day and thunderstorm just rolls through, but usually it's pretty quick. I'm talking a large weather front is moving in, but you just look and you just see that thing extending as far as the eyes can see. It's business. Um, Especially if you're doing your job, you're looking forward, you're looking backwards, you're looking at the current data. Your KPIs and metrics are telling you right away, should I bring an umbrella or heck, should I not even go outside the house today? And there's, there shouldn't be a surprise. I love what we do here. I love the company. I love that we're changing an industry. I love that we're building the technology that will be the standard for the next 50 years. These are the things that inspire me and make me forget about those rainy days. And I think that's what you want. That's what you're passionate about. And that is what's going to inspire you to continue to push, not just yourself, but the organization. AJ, 
talking about the drive and success and those kind of things, we're not talking to a slouch here. You have an award recently, the Entrepreneur of the Year, Ernst & Young, the New York District. Yeah. That's pretty cool. First of all, thank you. I joke it took me 23 hard years to win it. And that, that's how long I've been an entrepreneur. I, I started in roughly 2000 and never looked back. And so I think for me, it's an amazing milestone, but it is a reflection of a lot of scar tissue, <laughs> a lot of hard work, a lot of disappointment, a lot of moments of success, and more importantly, a lot of great people that put me here. Yes, my, my parents, certainly mentors, business associates, colleagues, my co-founders. You can't build a great company without great people. And I think it's important to remember that is, yes, I may have been given this award, but it came from people believing in me and empowering me to achieve that award. Let me be frank. I would find it very hard to believe someone has ever won that award and they did not have an amazing team, amazing family behind them as well, friends. There's so much support that is required to achieve at a certain level. And yeah, I think the first thing I say is thank you. I joke it took 23 years, but I immediately follow with couldn't be done without so many people in my AJ, if I asked you what skills or what gifts you bring to the table for the Entrepreneur Award, you're going to list three of them. All right. Everybody's got their top three and they're all fairly similar. What's that fourth quality that maybe other people don't have? What's that kind of hidden quality that maybe you or some entrepreneurs have? Yep. Because we know what one, two, and three are going to be. What's four and five and six that are maybe little quirks that you yeah. have that have helped you push forward? I'm going to start first with being a min-maxer. And people are like, what is a min-maxer? This is actually a gaming term. So anyone who plays video games, people will know the term min-maxer. This is someone who breaks the video game because they have figured out the precise combination of characteristics or points that they need to utilize or a tactic or even a broader strategy that will just break the game. In business... You have to think through how to be a min-maxer. Because think about it, you have a finite amount of resources. Your job is to think about what is going to move the needle the most. And a lot of people are like, that's easy. That's sales. Let's dig into that. What kind of sales? What is helping you sell? So, yes, selling or sales, sure, financial... But let's break it down. Let's look at it. There's a video game and it's called Be an Entrepreneur. And sales makes the ride easier every time. But the next game is called How Do You Get Sales? And so you have to think through that. And there's a hundred different ways you can go to market. With product differentiation, to price points, to value, to messaging, to channels. And you have to think through where you're seeing the biggest return. Where are you seeing things? Well, wait a second. That has an outside. And the moment you find it here, and I'm going to say the word again, you need the conviction to overload it. You need the ability to push your chips in on this and be like, I think this is it. 
And that's for anything. That could be from development and our product roadmap to our broader strategy of our organization. You're constantly thinking through, and this has always been a driving point for me. And I don't even say I'm the best at it. I've met people that could run circles around me from min-maxing, but I respect them tremendously. And my point is, I've always been a min-max. Like, I get it. And I apply it, which is more important than anything else. Not just understanding the framework, but be willing to do something, to be willing to look at it and be willing to go where someone would not go in. Be like, that's crazy. And be like, it's crazy to you because you think it's safer to do these 10 things. Yes. I think there's just one or maybe two tops. Everything else, get it out. And I've had colleagues that have worked for me and this has been a challenge. They'd been like, whoa, you don't want me to do this anymore. I go, there's no ROI on it. But he's like, or she might be like, everybody in the industry does this and be like, I don't care. So AJ, now when business gets bigger and you're appearing in magazine articles and things like that, do you have to start talking about your 5 a.m. ice bath and all this stuff? No. Now, this is funny. I was recently on a round table with a bunch of CEOs and it was like something out of a Netflix special. Like the first person starts be like, I start my day at 5.30 and run yeah. for 10 miles. And, yeah. and then the next person is like, I wake up at 4.30 and I practice jujitsu. And then I reconnoiter through the Black Forest and a SEAL team extracts me. And they just keep upping it and upping it. And they're like, what about you, AJ? I'm like, I wake up and walk the dogs? And they're like, and then what happens? I come back in the house and I have a cup of coffee? And they're like, do you do this earlier? Yeah. Like, I go, no, I'm like a 6.30 kind of person. I yeah. get up and walk the dogs. Right. I'm like, by 6.30, this person has already been awake like five hours. And I'm like, I can't even fathom. I'm like, what time are you going to bed? Like, these people are either insomniacs or lying or some combination. Or I look, or I'm just not. They're equal. I want to be fair. And there's some amazing people out there. But I oftentimes feel like I am the king of mediocrity. I like Bezos, pre-testosterone Bezos. This is like three, four years ago. And someone asked him his morning routine. He says, I like to putter. He said, I get up and I just putter, walk here, get my coffee and read this article and do this or that. If someone proved to me that like an ice bath worked, I'd say, oh, that's cool. Enjoy it. I'm not doing it. But I don't think there's any proof for these weird things that people do. Some people say it's so terrible that they've conquered. They ate the frog early. But no, thanks. Myself and my journeys, I find that I am not that interesting of a person. Because <laughs> even when I say I do something like, oh, I, I like to ski in the winter, people will be like, oh, where do you hella ski? And I'm like, I don't. I go up a lift, like most people in the country. Tell me about your, your out-of-bounds skiing or this, that, and the other. And look, I love people that do these things, but... They're looking for something exciting. So that's why I started laughing when you asked the question a little bit is, no, I don't have anything 
unique. I play basketball with my boys on occasion, a little pickleball. I ski in the winter. I, I walk my dogs. Yes, I occasionally like to go out with friends and fish and do things like that. Like just nothing where I am training to be Olympic grade at any of these things or put myself in peril. <laughs> I just don't find the need. I got a number of older brothers and one of my brothers and his friends, all these years they played basketball when they're getting older, 30 sure. basketball, softball. All these guys are hobbling around with bad knees and getting this replaced and that replaced. And I got to pace myself. No, I'm with you. I think it's an overlooked art to endure. That's right. AJ, what a pleasure talking again. Last time we talked, we got through the details of the business. And now two years later, to me, you seem just as enthused as ever. So whatever you're doing, I think it's because of that mission-driven work you're doing and that shows. So keep doing what you're doing and we'll check in in two years. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Mike. And I look forward to what happens next. And hopefully I'm still here. I feel <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. that's right. A little bit of a shadow on parts yeah. of this call, but yeah. no, I'm excited as ever. And again, I couldn't do it without my team. So Absolutely. I, think I appreciate everyone at the organization. All right, AJ, we'll keep in touch. Thanks again. Thank you. You've been listening to the Business of Pharmacy podcast with me, your host, Mike Kelzer. Please subscribe for all future episodes.